You're about to listen to Office Hours with me, Georgia Howe. This is a weekly companion series to PragerU's popular five-minute videos, where I explore various political and cultural topics with PragerU experts, asking questions and digging deeper to bring you perspectives that you may not hear in a traditional college classroom. To watch the video version of this series, click on the link in the description or go to dailywire.com. Follow the science, and the science is settled. These have become iconic slogans in American politics. Way before there was Dr. Fauci and the gender on a spectrum folks, these familiar phrases were almost always deployed to warn about climate change. Today, we're going to talk about what we know for sure about our warming planet and what we don't, so we can make policy decisions with a cool head. Joining me is Danish author and president of the Copenhagen Consensus Center, former director of the Danish government's Environmental Assessment Institute in Copenhagen, and the host of a PragerU video, Climate Change, What's So Alarming, Jorn Lomberg. Let's jump right in. Jorn, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to be here. Thank you, George. First off, I just wanted to ask, because your background isn't in climate science. You're actually, your degree is actually in political science. So how did you get into writing about environmental issues, and where is your knowledge base on this coming from? So look, Georgia, I simply take the starting point in what the climate scientists are uh, telling us. So that's the three incredibly large volumes that we get from the UN Climate Panel every five or six years. Uh, so there's a lot of smart climate scientists telling us what's up and down and what's real with climate, uh, uh, climate science. But we also then have to make the decision, what should we do about that? Because remember, the climate is not the only costly thing. Climate policy is also costly. And that's the thing that I know much more about and that's relevant in the social science perspective. So it's a question of realizing we both have to pay the climate cost. We also have to pay the climate policy cost. How do we minimize the sum of those two? That's what I help bring along. And that's really what all climate economics is all about. So you've indicated that people on both ends of the spectrum have some blind spots when it comes to climate change. So people on the right, some of them uh, have written it off wholesale, and then there are those on the left who you've described as alarmist. So what are some of the best established facts that you think um, regarding human-caused climate change that you think a well-informed person should be aware of when making decisions about policies? So look, the first one is global warming is a real problem. We emit CO2 from a byproduct from uh, using fossil fuels mostly, uh, and that heats up the planet. That's mostly a problem just simply because the fact is that all of our societies are adjusted to where our climate was historically. So if it gets warmer, if it got colder, uh, but if it gets warmer, it is more uncomfortable. So, you know, Boston and, uh, and, and Miami are both well adjusted to the climate that they used to have. If both places get hotter or colder, it will have a cost. So that's the fundamental reason why global warming is a real problem. The second thing we also need to recognize is that it, we're, we're kind of being told that this is the end of the world. It's no such thing. It's a problem, not the end of the world. So again, get a sense of the proportion of this? Well, climate economics tells us that if we do nothing about climate change, the impact by the end of the century would be in the order of three to four percent of global GDP. 
remember by then we'll be about 450% as rich as each person is today. So the impact it will feel like instead of being 450% as rich by the end of the century will only be 434% as rich. Yes, that's a problem. No, it's not the end of the world. So those two facts, those are both very well-established fact, one in climate science, the other one in climate economics, we need to know in order to make good decisions. And most people don't. They often reject, as you say, just the climate science, which I think is just wrong. But many others also reject the climate economics that tell us it's a problem, not the end of the world. So a lot of the focus has been on protecting people in poorer countries, though, that may be disproportionately affected by this. So you've argued that cutting carbon emissions isn't actually the best way to help those populations. Can you explain that a little bit? So fundamentally, global warming will hit poor people the most. That's partly because if you're poor, you're much more vulnerable, and also because most poor people live in places where it's already pretty damn warm. Uh, and so they will, you know, I, I'm in southern Sweden. I'll probably like it being a little hotter, but many other places it will not be necessarily a benefit. The important point to recognize, though, is poor people have tons of other problems as well. They have struggled with their kids not uh, dying from easily curable infectious diseases, not getting enough food, not getting a good education. There's not enough jobs. There's corruption, all kinds of other issues. And the fundamental point is if we help, for instance, lift them out of poverty, not only will that make them less vulnerable to climate problems, but it'll also make them less vulnerable to all these other problems that they're facing every day. So. If you ask most people, especially in poor countries, what would you rather have us do? Spend a billion on doing something for climate or spend a billion on helping people out of poverty? They will overwhelmingly say, please spend the billion smartly and actually helping us out of poverty. And that's why we should be very careful to say, sure, climate change is one of the many things that we need to fix in the 21st century. But the way many people approach this as the first and foremost thing that we need to do and the way that we will help future generations are just vastly off. You know, think about the idea of, of vulnerable people in third world countries right now suffering and people saying in first world countries, you know what? I'm going to help this poor lady with the kids that might die tonight by not driving to work tomorrow. That's just, you know, that's almost callous. No, we should help her by making sure she get better access to food, job, not being poor, and their, her kids get education and all these other things that will make her life and their lives much better and also much more robust and resilient against climate problems. Well, I think it was Michael Schellenberg that made the argument, too, that when you make a country richer, they then take a greater interest in maintaining their environment too. So that's another argument I've heard for helping poorer countries economically. So one of the other issues though that I've heard discussed with climate change is it's not entirely predictable how the ecosystems will be affected by an increase in temperature. So things like sea level rise, what do we know about that? So, look, a lot of things will be impacted with climate change, and we actually have studied a lot of these. So sea level rise obviously is going to be a problem. Everywhere where you're close to a, 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 the, the sea will be more at risk because sea levels rise. But, and this is the important part, we also know very, very well that you, for very little resources, 
can protect most of these communities incredibly well. Holland, of course, being the the poster example in, in this case, uh, remember about 40% of the country is now below sea level. But when you go visit, when you go to the world's four, 14th largest airport, uh, Schiphol in, in near Amsterdam, it is uh, what it's about uh, 20 feet below sea level. It's actually one of the only airports in the world that used to be the site for a major naval battle. But it's not like you go there and you think, oh, my God, I'm you know, surrounded by dikes and it feels dangerous and could be flooded anytime. No, because it's technology we've had since the old Sumerians, you know, like 5000 years ago. We know how to do this and we know how to do this very, very cheaply. So when you actually look at what will happen, sea levels will rise. This is very predictable. But we also know that societies will adapt to this at very low cost, much less than 0.1% of GDP on average across all nations. So what will really happen is we will, because we'll be richer and more robust and more resilient, actually see fewer people being flooded in the future, not because of climate change, because that all other things equal will make it slightly worse, but because we're much richer and hence much better able to protect our societies. And this is a crucial central feature for climate problems. Climate is not something that takes the world and breaks it, makes it terrible. Climate is something that makes progress go slightly slower. So instead of a world where we will see about 10,000 people being flooded every year by the end of the century, down from about 3 million people every year uh, today, it will only be a world where will be about 15,000 people. That's Worse, but remember, it's still incredibly much better than today, where about 3 million people have floated every year, mostly because of economic development. So I want to talk a little bit about some solutions. You've described wind and solar power as expensive feel-good measures that will have an imperceptible climate impact. And you've argued instead that we should focus on investing in research and development of green energy to lower the cost of energy so that everyone will want it, including China and India. So what kinds of green energy solutions are you advocating for? So the important point to recognize is the current set of solutions are fairly expensive. And that's why you can get rich countries to do a little of it. But it's not actually the way you're going to solve this problem. Remember, most of the emissions in the 21st century are not going to come from the U.S. or Europe or any of the other rich nations. It's mostly going to come from China, India, uh, 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 Africa, the rest of Southeast Asia, those places. And they're not going to do these things unless they're cheap. And so instead of putting up these solar panels and wind turbines and feeling good about ourselves, but having to subsidize them one way or another, which is expensive and rich countries can afford to do to a certain degree, but not very much, we should look for better solutions. Remember, mankind has never solved big problems by saying, I'm sorry, could everybody please not do a lot of the fundamental stuff you like to do? You're not going to solve global warming by telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you be a little poorer and drive a little less and be a little colder? That, that's just not going to work. What you do to solve problems is innovation. If we can innovate the price of green energy down below fossil fuels, everyone will switch. Also, China, India, Africa, and all the others. And so the fundamental point here is, as long as we keep going down the route 
of saying, let's try to buy more expensive solar panels and wind turbines, we're not going to solve this problem. But if we innovate, and and you ask me which one is the right technology, I don't know. If I knew, I'd be a lot richer. I don't think anyone really knows. The point here is we should look at a lot of different solutions. Now, one of the solutions could be much, much more effective solar panels and wind turbines combined with lots and lots of cheap batteries. That's why it doesn't work right now, because you can't get wind and solar on tab, right? You don't get it when the wind is not blowing or the sun is not shining. But it could also be fission, the nuclear power that we have right now. It could be fusion, you know, the thing that the sun does. It could be a lot of other ideas. Craig Venter, the guy who cracked the human genome back in 2000, he has this idea of growing algae on the ocean surface. These algae would be specifically designed to soak up sunlight and CO2 and produce oil. Then we harvest the oil from the ocean surface and we basically keep our entire current fossil fuel infrastructure, but feed it with fossil fuels that are CO2 neutral because they just soaked it up on the ocean surface. Now, this idea doesn't work yet because it's way too expensive. But we should be spending money, not a lot of money, but a little money to see if that technology could come through. And again, we're going to be spending money on a lot of different technologies. Most of these are going to fail, and that's fine. We really just need one or more realistically, a few of these technologies to become cheaper than fossil fuels. And then that's what's going to power the rest of the 21st century. So you're advocating for market competition amongst a variety of energy sources. Yes, but but the but the crucial point is to remember that it's not going to happen in the market right now. There's an underinvestment in uh, pretty much all uh, research and development. That's why we spend a lot of money on on universities doing research and medical research because it's hard for pharmaceutical companies to gain, you know, if they discover something, really a breakthrough, but it only leads to uh, technologies that they can actually make money off of 20 or 30 years down the line, they can't use that patent to actually reap back the benefits that they put in first as investments. That's why societies invest in, if you will, Nobel laureate research. And that's exactly the same thing we should be doing in energy research. We should make all those breakthroughs that enable a future Tesla or Apple or whatever uh, the, the the new company is going to be that can take these solutions to market and basically power the 21st century. So that would be like grants and things for research in energy yes. development. So a lot of people are really excited about nuclear energy, and you did mention it a little bit. Obviously, nuclear energy is zero emissions, um, and it's very economical when it comes to land use. What are some of the reasons why nuclear energy hasn't taken off as much as we would have liked so nuclear is fundamentally very safe. It is absolutely, as you mentioned, almost one of the least CO2 emitting uh, energy technologies and it's backlog, uh, 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 sorry, I'm forgetting that name right now, but it gives you 24 seven power. Uh, and, and, and so it has a lot of benefits. Unfortunately, it's way too expensive right now. So when you build new power plants, Partly because we've just simply upped the regulatory, uh, 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 the regulations around it so much that it's incredibly expensive to do what is called what is known as today's technology, a third generation nuclear. Now, a lot of people are investing in fourth generation nuclear, uh, Bill Gates, among many others, and they're suggesting this will be modular, cheap, uh, mass produced, very, very safe and it'll basically be cheaper than fossil fuels. That would be wonderful, and it's certainly one of the places we should be spending our research money, 
But, you know, remember, we were also told that about the other three uh, generations. So I would say we need to wait and see if this is the solution. I could easily imagine that, but it's not yet. Unfortunately, right now, it's still very expensive. We should not shut down existing nuclear power plants because, remember, the, to the, the majority of cost from nuclear power plants is building it and decommissioning it. While it's running, it's actually incredibly cheap. And all the nuclear power plants you're shutting down, you've already paid for them and you've already committed to paying the decommissioning cost. So basically what you're saying is, no, we don't want free energy in the middle. That's just dumb. So you should not shut down existing nuclear power plants. But unfortunately, third generation nuclear power plants, for uh, additional ones are not the solution. So a lot of these nuclear power plants are being shut down why is that? I mean, do you have like a steel man argument for why some people think they should be shut down? So this shows you that a lot of the climate conversation is not a rational discussion. It really is uh, a, a discussion of feelings. It's about, you know, putting up those solar panels to show the world how much you care about the climate and the world. But the reality, of course, is the climate doesn't care about your feelings. It cares about how many tons of CO2 we emit it. And the fact is that nuclear power plants, existing nuclear power plants, keep that amount down. If you replace them, a lot of people will say, well, we'll replace them entirely with renewables. Remember, renewables still don't you know, make, uh, make electricity when the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. And so the reality is they end up being replaced by a lot of fossil fuels. So fundamentally, you replace cheap zero CO2 energy with expensive subsidized green energy that makes you feel good and a lot of costly fossil fuels. That's just a dumb idea. So please, 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 don't stop existing nuclear power plants. So, I mean, is that just like a virtue signal on the part of politicians that are pushing for that? Absolutely. Okay. Yes. yes. Now, we've had some, we had recently the COP26, and we've had in the past a few of these big conferences. What are your feelings about how effective these conferences are? Do you feel like real progress is being made? Well, so there's a reason why it's called COP26, because there's been 25 meetings like that just before that. Uh, we've had, you know, climate negotiations uh, for the last 30 years, and we've achieved almost nothing. It's not surprising because all of these meetings basically get everybody together and have them promise stuff they really don't want to promise for a future when they're no longer going to be leaders. So it's very obvious that, you know, Biden and many others can go there and say, I'm, I'm, I'm going to promise stuff in 2030 or in 2050 when somebody else will have to figure this out. But the reality is, of course, nobody, when they come back to their home countries, actually want to do this because it's going to be expensive. And when you increase the cost of energy, voters tend to throw you out. So the reality here is it is not really a solution to make these promises, although we all make this about the, all these grand promises. And that's also what the UN themselves found. Uh, they they uh, released, a, uh, I think, a, a sorely underreported report on the effect of the last decade of climate uh, uh, policy, so including Paris and all the other cops in the 2010s. And what they said was it was a lost decade. They could not tell the difference between what actually happened with emissions all the way up to uh, the onset of COVID and a world where we had done nothing to deal with, uh, deal with climate change since 2005. It tells you that while everybody reports as this is 
you know, world break, uh, breaking news and, and Paris Agreement will save the planet and everything. The actual indication is that it has absolutely no impact. Again, I, I, I like the fact that we're trying to deal with this, but fundamentally barking up the wrong tree simply means you don't look at the right things. Instead of focusing on getting politicians to do unenforceable and vote losing uh, promises of cutting carbon emissions, we should be investing cheaper, more effectively in green energy research and development. That's a much smarter, much better way that'll actually solve this problem. And also one that voters will be much like more likely to support because it's cheaper and the solution that has actually fixed all the other problems that the world has had in the past. All right. Well, Bjorn, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people who want to follow your work find you online? So the easiest is on Twitter. Uh, it's Bjorn Lo- at Bjorn Lomborg, uh, just my, my full name. Uh, I also run a think tank called the Copenhagen Consensus, where we do a lot of other stuff as we started off talking about uh, fundamentally looking at what are the smart things to do for the world. Because remember, in a world that is not perfect by any means, we still have many, many other problems like malaria and tuberculosis and a lack of uh, vaccinations and nutrition and all these other things. We also look at climate as one of these many things and we try to find where can you spend an extra dollar and help the world the most. All right, well, Bjorn, thank you so much for taking the time to come on. Thank you. Well, folks, that was the end of today's Office Hours. If you enjoyed this conversation with Bjorn Lomberg, make sure to check out his PragerU video. Climate Change, What's So Alarming, as well as his book, False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. Until next week, I'm Georgia Howe. Thanks for tuning in.